This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, I'm Tom Trordosh. It's a pleasure to be part of this CARTA Symposium on Altered States of Mind. My title is Imagination and Embodiment in Practices of Sacred Sonorous Being. I'm going to begin with a passage from the poet William Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell. The ancient poets animated all sensible objects with gods or geniuses, calling them by the names and adorning them with the properties of woods, rivers, mountains, lakes, cities, nations, and whatever their enlarged and numerous senses could perceive. And particularly, they studied the genius of each city and country placing it under its mental deity till a system was formed, which some took advantage of and enslaved the vulgar by attempting to realize or abstract the mental deities from their objects. Thus began priesthood, choosing forms of worship from poetic tales. And at length, they pronounced that the gods had ordered such things. Thus men forgot that all deities reside in the human breast. This passage addresses my theme of the role of religious practices in defining what it is to be human. Blake offers an evolutionary or at least parahistorical argument that the priest is a debased and degenerate version of the poet operating through abstraction of mental deities from their objects rather than through the poets enlarged and numerous senses and thereby serving enslavement and oppression rather than liberation and imagination. Imagination is a fundamental human process, to borrow a phrase from Janice Jenkins. Can we then say that imagining is an altered state of consciousness? Or is it the default state of consciousness that is the norm and defines us as human? To begin answering this question, it's useful to identify the opposite of imagination. And I want to say that it is taking for granted. In Blake's terms, this taking for granted is not merely a description of everyday quotidian life. It is a forgetting that all deities reside in the human breast. Imagining is not simply a matter of mental imagery, nor even a matter of multi-sensory imagery. I want us to recognize imagination as deeply embodied, such that the polarity of imagining and taking for granted is parallel to the polarity of movement and stasis. All movement is grounded in imagination, not only as a form of intentionality or tending toward the world, but insofar as it is that it invariably has a kind of style. And style is the imaginative possibility always present in movement. To take this one step further, movement defines life because the absolute absence of movement is death. I want to introduce the idea of sound as a feature of embodiment, movement, and imagination. Sound exists in polarity with silence, whether it is the silence of solitude or the silence of censorship. But I want to leave silence to the side in order to engage sound in religious practice. Indeed, in a comparison of two religious practices, engaging the human voice in song. I'm going to make a lot of the fact that as bodily beings, we both hear and produce sound and ask us to imagine that sound is one of our enlarged and numerous senses. 
and some I want to offer a reflection on the religious implications of our sonorous being, a phrase from the philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty, which is highly resonant to understanding the contribution of imagination as a bodily process of defining our humanity. Let me begin by quoting the passage that inspires this reflection from Merleau-Ponty's 1968 essay, The Intertwining, the Chiasm, in which he introduces the idea of humans as sonorous beings. Like crystal, like metal, and many other substances, I am a sonorous being, but I hear my own vibration from within. As Malraux said, I hear myself with my throat. In this, as he also has said, I am incomparable. My voice is bound to the mass of my own life, as is the voice of no one else. But if I am close enough to the other who speaks to hear his breath and feel his effervescence and his fatigue, I almost witness in him, as in myself, the awesome birth of vociferation. There is a reflexivity of the movements of phonation and of hearing. They have their sonorous inscription. The vociferations have in me their motor echo. This new reversibility and the emergence of the flesh as expression are the point of insertion of speaking and thinking in the world of silence. The first sentence of this passage evokes the materiality of our bodies as substance. The unexpected comparison of our living materiality to inanimate crystal or metal invokes an alterity or otherness in our embodied being that will become consequential in my argument with respect to the sacred. However, ours is a sonority that not only rings or pings when it's struck, but is intentional in producing its own sound sentient in perceiving that sound and reflexive about both the sound and its source as uniquely bound to the mass of my own life. This sonorous being is intersubjective insofar as we can relate to the voice, breath, effervescence, and fatigue of another human, a fellow sonorous being. It is a function of what Merleau-Ponty refers to as the flesh, by which he means our sentient materiality. His use of words like movements, emergence, and insertion suggests the existential status of speaking and thinking in the world of silence. Merleau-Ponty's understanding of the sonorous being of our embodied fleshly existence can give us insight into the imaginative embodied generation of sacred power if we take it up in the context of concrete examples. Accordingly, I'll briefly introduce two ethnographic phenomena that extend the extent existential meaning of our sonorous being to the dimension of the sacred. These are the religious practices of Pentecostal charismatic singing in tongues and Native American church peyote songs. Pentecostalism is a diverse global movement within Christianity. It is characterized by the ritual performance of charisms or gifts of the spirit, prominent among which is the practice of glossolalia or speaking in tongues. Although in some forms of Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues occurs as a spontaneous vocalization in a state of trance, among many charismatics, speaking in tongues is a conscious and intentional act. Most often those who speak in tongues are praying in tongues and thus communicating with God. Specifically, praying in tongues is a form of praise to God with the understanding that vernacular language is vastly inadequate to express 
the magnitude of praise of which the deity is worthy. The gift of tongues can be used in private prayer, but has particular performative impact when a group or a large assembly is praying in tongues together. This impact is amplified when praying in tongues becomes singing in tongues. In a large assembly, the mass of vocalization provides a background groan that modulates around a particular tone and with an improvised melodic contour that among Catholic charismatics is, a, is reminiscent of a Gregorian chant. There are no set melodies, since as a gift of the spirit, tongues are presumed to be improvised, spontaneous, and inspired. There's typically no instrumental accompaniment of singing in tongues, but frequently a gestural accompaniment in the prayer posture of palms open and arms spread or raised, and occasionally a percussive element added by the clapping of hands. Allow me to give you a simulation, a brief, respectful imitation of singing in tongues. Native American pietism is a pan-Indian religion, many ritual features of which are derived from Plains Indian cultural patterns. Ritual practice is centered on prayerful consumption of the hallucinogenic cactus Lophophora williamsi, which contains significant amounts of the psychoactive alkaloids, prominently including mescaline. The peyote is in effect a sacrament, medicine, spirit, and a source of insight and illumination for participants. Peyote songs are a prominent feature of the Native American church. Like singing in tongues, peyote songs are a form of prayer understood to be inspired by the peyote spirit and to facilitate connection to the divine. They may be sung in private, but when performed in a peyote meeting are solo performances. These prayer meetings typically take place in a Plains Indian style teepee and are all night events that last from sundown to sunrise the following morning. In the course of the meeting, peyote medicine is passed round several times and participants take turns praying, singing, and encouraging a patient whose troubles are often the reason for which the meeting is being held. Each song has a distinct melody and lyrics, which are typically repeated four times with only minor variation and improvisation. Individuals may have created more than one song and may learn songs from others. The singer usually self accompanies with a ceremonial water drum or rattle. In contrast to the flowing wave-like quality of singing in tongues, the percussion amplifies the song's effect with a pronounced ryth rhythmic element. Again, allow me to give you a simulation, a brief respectful imitation of a fragment of a peyote song. The critical feature that these forms of sacred song have in common is that they have no semantic component such that all their meaning is carried in the sounds as such. There are no words. In peyote songs and singing in tongues, there are recognizable phonemes and morphemes, syllables and even syntax, but no semantic or lexical elements. Close phonetic and morphological analysis show that there are recognizable patterns among individuals and groups that pray together, and occasionally a person will report being gifted with more than one language or more than one peyote song. 
Yet in the absence of semantic meaning, these forms are entirely about the corporeal being of sound. There is meaning, but the meaning exists whole cloth with no possibility of parsing into units. It is a seamless fabric of resonant praise for singing in tongues and a unitary sonorous embrace of the medicine's power in peyote songs. In this way, the practices presuppose a distinct state of consciousness, both in the absence of a semantic content and in the presence of the sacred. Merleau-Ponty makes two points about vocalization in a way that suggests there is something about the embodiment we have in common as human beings that forms the basis for experience of the sacred across these culturally distinct forms of ritual song. First, he says, I do not hear myself as I hear others. The sonorous existence of my voice is for me, as it were, poorly exhibited. I have rather an echo of its articulated existence. It vibrates through my head rather than outside. I am always on the same side of my body. It presents itself to me in one invariable perspective. I hear myself from both within and from without. I experience, and as often as I wish, the transition and the metamorphosis of the one experience into the other. And it is only as though the hinge between them, solid, unshakable, remained irremediably hidden from me. The existence of this hinge evokes the theme of reversibility so prominent in what Merleau-Ponty has to teach us about embodiment. There is the reversibility of my voice uttered and my voice heard. There is also a deeper reversibility of my voice articulated and my voice as I feel it from within myself. Second, when it comes to spoken language, Merleau-Ponty says, to understand a phrase is nothing else than to fully welcome it in its sonorous being, or as we put it so well, to hear what it says. The meaning is not on the phrase like the butter on the bread, like a second layer of psychic reality spread over the sound. It is the totality of what is said, the integral of all the differentiations of the verbal chain. It is given with the words for those who have ears to hear. Merleau-Ponty's point is that meaning is always embedded in the sound of speech and is not something added to it. The absence of semantic meaning in the sacred singing we have considered does not render the vocalization inconsequential or uninterested, uninteresting. Instead, it points to the magnificence of sonorous being in and for itself. Indeed, the phenomenology of speaking includes far more than semantic and lexical meaning. The feeling of vocalization in our mouth and our characteristic vocal posture, the corporal resonance of the sound, the echo and acoustic variation in our audition, the presence of others in the modes of intimacy or performance, communication through tone of voice and the modulation between silence intervening in speech or speech in silence. These features are all present simultaneously with and providing color and flavor to semantic meaning before it enters dialogue, discourse, or narrative. The phenomenological immediacy of sonorous being is evident if we allow ourselves to reimagine vocalization, speech, and song as bodily secretions, material emanations of sonorous being. The absence of semantic meaning in peyote songs and singing in tongues amplifies 
these phenomenological features and their reversibility. The reversibility of the voiced and the heard and the different ways they feel or resonate not only draws back the curtain on alterity or otherness, but instantiates alterity as an immediate bodily experience. The religious and ritual setting consecrates the natural act of vocalization as an imaginative act, such that if it is possible, as is the case in both the Catholic Charismatic Renewal and the Native American Church, to experience word as power, it also becomes possible to experience voice as power. What I want to suggest in conclusion is that these sacred songs derive their performative efficacy, their power, by tapping into the embodied alterity that grounds the sacred in a particular way. Being able to move autonomously is the definition of animate life. But Merleau-Ponty observes that there are certain kinds of movements that go nowhere. Among these are, in his words, especially those strange movements of the throat and mouth that form the cry and the voice. Those movements end in sounds and I hear them. The paradox of movement that goes nowhere provides a clue to another kind of reversibility, that between imminence and transcendence. To be precise, in peyote songs and singing in tongues, the sacred emanates from the singer's body, but in both cases, the songs and tongues are also a gift from a higher power. In both cases, the act of singing is a reaching beyond and has a trajectory toward the divine, but it is also irrevocably lodged in the chest, throat, and tongue as movement that goes nowhere. In the end, engendering this reversibility of the transcendent and imminent in concrete experience is the significance of peyote songs and singing in tongues and what they have most in common in addressing the imaginative force of sonorous being in defining our humanity. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.